This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. My BDD didn't get pinned as BDD for a very long time. And the relationship to the routines that I had was an issue and nobody caught it. And the meaning that I made from what I saw was an issue and nobody caught it. And I didn't know any better because it was, I just believed what I saw what I saw and I believed what I believed internally. Um, and so often the amount of time, the, the, the word excessive, I think is key here, as well as the interference with life, social life, school, work, it, it really does interfere with one's ability to, to do things normally. Body dysmorphic disorder impacts five to 10 million Americans. And I came up with the idea for this topic when a friend shared her own journey on Instagram. And I soon learned that there's very little information available about BDD. So I reached out to the Body Dysmorphic Disorder Foundation and was introduced to my guests today. First, we have Dr. Amita Jassy, who is a consultant clinical psychologist at the National and Specialist OCD, BDD, and Related Disorder Service for Children and Young People in the UK. She is also a trustee for the BDD Foundation charity. Additionally, we have Rachel Kutnick, who is a therapist in private practice in Los Angeles, California, and she has been a practicing therapist for 12 years with a background in community counseling with children, adults and families, and emergency room crisis work. These women bring such helpful information and it is a quite vulnerable discussion. Rachel even speaks about her own BDD journey, which really brings all of this to life. And I will say this is a very sensitive topic, um, quite more serious than many of the topics discussed on the FemPower Health podcast. So you may want to be cautious around who all you're listening to this in front of just to make sure that you're in a comfortable space. And I do want to apologize. I was quite sick when we were recording this, but it took us so long to record that we didn't want to delay it to make sure that we can get this information out as soon as possible. The good news is I don't talk too much, but I really do appreciate this conversation and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. So let's go ahead and dive right in to this really important topic. Do you want to go ahead and start by introducing yourselves? Do you want to go first, Rachel? Sure. So I am a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in Los Angeles, California, and I've been a practicing therapist for 12 years. I've been in private practice for the past two years, and I 
primarily don't work with body dysmorphic disorder. I see some of my clients that have body dysmorphic disorder, but I myself have BDD and have been struggling with BDD for the past 20 years. And my own healing journey and becoming a therapist has really been a crucial part of recovering from BDD. Uh, it's been a really lonely <laughs> journey in trying to get better with a lot of professionals that didn't understand. And so I made an effort to become a therapist myself so that I could better understand, help myself and help other people as well. Wow. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing that about yourself. And I think it will help everyone understand the perspective that you're coming from as we connect today. Amita, do you want to go next? Yeah, so I'm Amita Jassy and I'm a consultant clinical psychologist and I work in a national specialist service for young people with body dysmorphic disorder and related disorders. So we're based in the UK and we're the only service um, for, only specialist service for young people with body dysmorphic disorder or say BDD and actually one of very few um, clinics in the world that specialise in this disorder in young people. So I think just again reflects um, sort of limited resources we work with OCD as well and yet for OCD there's you know lots and lots of clinics um, BDD it's very different so I've been working in the clinic since 2010 and I'm also a trustee of the BDD foundation which is a charity for BDD for sufferers families professionals and I've been a trustee of the foundation since um, 2018. Wow so let's talk about what BDD is. I don't want it to sound like it's a generic term that's a catch-all for anyone who has bulimia and anorexia because I think there's nuances to it. So maybe if you could just dive in and help us understand what the condition is. So just clinically, BDD is a preoccupation with one or more perceived flaws or defects with your physical appearance. Typically, somebody with BDD will have a hyper-focus on um, an area of their body that for them looks completely defective, just hideous. You know, the, when they look in the mirror, what they see, how, what they perceive, other people would look at it as not even there. They wouldn't even see it. Or they might see what the person's talking about, but it would be so slight. They, they wouldn't really think it was that big of a deal. But the person with BDD truly does see their physical flaws that they perceive are flaws in a really distorted way. There can be repetitive behaviors associated with BDD, like mirror checking, excessive grooming, skin picking, reassurance seeking. There can also be mental acts of comparing your appearance to other people. And the most common one is gonna be the mirror checking with BDD separate from anorexia or bulimia, if the, the main focus is body fat, weight, then there would probably be a different diagnosis there. Typically with BDD, it could be hair, it could be skin. Yeah, that distinction is really interesting with eating disorders and, and BDD. And as you said, so with eating disorders, it's primarily around body weight and shape, whereas BDD it can be anything. It can be specific features, often more than one um, feature from what we know from research. Um, it can also just be this sense of things not fitting together properly. 
Um, so, it, you know, just things not being symmetrical or just not feeling right. But I think those words that Rachel used, it's kind of the distress associated with it is so strong. There's kind of shame, disgust, um, you know, anxiety. There's lots of heavy emotions that go with that. And it's quite interesting regarding eating disorders because I think it is quite nuanced and I think there is overlap um, because often people with eating disorders also feel that way and there is a subtype of body dysmorphic disorder called muscle dysmorphia which is where people typically men but it can be women too feel like they're not muscular enough um, or they're puny even though to look at them you wouldn't see that at all in them very much the same way as BDD, you know, you, another person couldn't see what the, the sufferer sees. And similar to eating disorders where, you know, um, people are feeling like they're fat, even though objectively you put them on the scales or you look at them, they're actually quite the opposite, dangerously so. So that's a, a quite an interesting subtype of body dysmorphic disorder, muscle dysmorphia, where I think the overlap with eating disorders becomes even more um, than we find with other forms of BDD. How do you know that when it's just being the average person who is like, oh, you know, let me cover my gray versus when it went to that spectrum of BDD? And here's why I ask. I'm actually thinking of vivid memories of my mom who has since passed away. She would sit in the mirror for hours and there were rumors that she had bulimia um, and it's so sad because like there's all these things I'm learning and I now have so much compassion for all the things she dealt with back in a time when no one talked about things. Um, but she would like always be looking at the jawline. That was her thing is the jaw. And then here she would always get on my case about the frown lines in between the eyebrows. And my dad would even make like tape for her like and you can now buy stuff, but she would like tape her forehead all day long while she was studying. So she wouldn't frown. It was like all day at night when she studied the mirror all the time. Talk to us about how family members, how we as someone going through it, because we live with ourselves every day. We don't think it's a big deal, right? Necessarily, we may think the suffering is normal, that everyone does it. So how do we know when it's a problem? I think for me, um, you know, as a professional worker, this, I think it's the distress and the interference that are sort of the giveaway. I think, as you said, you know, we were, all, we were talking earlier, weren't we, about sort of grey hair and, you know, thinking about appearance is normal. You know, it's evolutionary sort of from that perspective it is what we do. I think it's when it tips into it becomes really distressing and interfering and it stops you from doing the things that you want to be doing and when it's driven by anxiety and, and shame and disgust and, and kind of just fear that feels differently because I have lots of young people saying to me but I you know I want to wear makeup you know why you know why are you telling me that I can't wear makeup and I always say the distinction is it's not about wearing makeup or not it's about what's driving it so for the young people I work with BDD it's driven by absolute fear that they their sort of perceived flaws will be seen and that keeps them you know it's paralyzing and they just can't function without doing all the repetitive behaviors whereas somebody else another young person who doesn't have BDD who enjoys wearing makeup could wear the same amount of makeup as I enjoy it they can stop it's not distressing. They don't think something awful will happen if their, you know, perceived fools are, are seen. So that for me is is the distinction, the kind of where it, it perhaps tips into more like body dysmorphic disorder. But I don't know, Rachel, if I've sort of captured what, what you think. For me, what's interesting 
I have a clinical perspective, but I have my own lived experience. And when I look back, oh, my, my BDD didn't get pinned as BDD for a very long time. And the, the relationship to the routines that I had was an issue and nobody caught it. And the meaning that I made from what I saw was an issue and nobody caught it. And I didn't know any better because it was, I just believed what I, I saw, what I saw, and I believed what I believed internally. Um, and so often the amount of time, the, the, the word excessive, I think is key here, as well as the interference with life, social life, school, work, it, it really does interfere with one's ability to, to do things normally. The mirror checking at one point for me was five to eight hours a day mm-hmm. and nobody said anything because they thought it would, you know, oh, she's just, you know, going through a phase or, you know, doing her makeup or, and I, I was seriously suffering and couldn't get myself away from the mirror. It's not even that I wanted to look in the mirror. It was just wanting the painful thoughts and, and feelings associated with what I saw to go away and that maybe if I looked a little longer, I'd see something differently. And nobody really knew what I was thinking when I looked in the mirror and that that was one of the issues. So as I mentioned to you, like, I guess one of the things, and I only want to say this because of what you're saying and what I'm thinking right now is how someone can address it. What is the appropriate thing to say? Because one, we don't always know the length of it. Like if it's a family member who sees you all the time, they may notice the five to eight hours, you know, those not as close to you don't. So clearly people may say something. So it's like, as the person who's suffering in silence, like what can that person do? Coming from a really loving space, I'm really concerned about this behavior and education for families that BDD exists and what it is, that this is not, most of the time people think it's a phase, you're a teenager. The worst is that it's vanity, that the reassurance seeking can get mistaken as vanity. I already told you, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're fine. And the reassurance doesn't even stop (laughs) what the person sees. Um, It can only, it can often make it worse. And so coming from a lot of empathy and compassion and concern, the family becoming educated together and having open conversations about what is BDD? Could this be BDD? Seeing a professional and having family therapy even to have that external clinical perspective of yes, you know, and and a diagnosis if needed and where to go from there of how to intervene and cut down on those behaviors because just telling someone to stop looking in the mirror is not enough and it's not helpful. <laughs> it's it puts a lot of shame on the person because they would stop if they could. And that's where it it crosses the line to mental illness and not vanity. Like okay, stop looking in the mirror. You've looked in the mirror, you know you're beautiful, it's fine, walk away. Uh, versus I don't want to look in the mirror and I spend the whole time thinking I'm hideous. I walk away from the mirror and I feel hideous. People tell me I'm beautiful and I still feel hideous. So then where do you go with that? (laughs) And, And typically the belief system, at least that I struggled with most is something is wrong with me. Um, I can't just see what other people see. I truly see something different 
and I feel really stuck in my body. And that empathy and compassion versus judgment would be a great place to start. That's beautiful. Are there discussions you by chance have with these young girls on if someone says something to you that makes you feel uncomfortable, what they can do? Or is it something that's just too hard and they really have to almost sadly go into a corner and deal with it with the people that they know and and therapy? It's a really good question. I think we've got a a long way to go in terms of just that broader understanding of BDD and and raising awareness. I think we're getting there. I think I don't know what it's like in the States, but in the UK, there's a lot going on about sort of filtered images and making it really explicit on websites and so forth that what young people and adults are being exposed to is not realistic. Um, So kind of in the magazines, they'll show kind of unfiltered pictures and so forth. Because I think, um, as Rachel says, comparing is a really big part of body dysmorphic disorder. And I think social media opens up huge kind of I and mean, it's 24 7 you know it's not like in the old days like me how old I am you know you to get your magazine and that will be the, the only thing you know young people are comparing images on social media asking for reassurance so and it's 24 7 um and that just can fuel this you know this cycle of distress and you know, as well, just then you know getting reassurance but that only being temporary it gives you a temporary or even if you you know young people posting images and getting you know the reassurance that they think they want they don't believe it and it can just really spiral and I think what we do support people to think about is their relationship with social media because there are some real positives of you know what's out there but just knowing what the pitfalls are and having a a healthier relationship with social media so knowing you know that these images are not necessarily you know true um and also understanding how that plays into body dysmorphic disorder how that can play into those you know those fears and those worries about appearance so it's kind of less about maybe what other people are doing necessarily but it's more about sort of the the person who's understand when it's people outside of kind of the the family and people you have in contact with it's it's more understanding and, and what that might play sort of part that might play in keeping sort of those worries going is the the main thing that we do in therapy but we do work with family members because you know families and friends and you know they're all impacted on they need support to know what is the right thing to say and what can they do um and I know with I work with under 18s we know family members get pulled into it as well like buying products and um you know under 18s here can't get surgery for example so they'll be desiring cosmetic procedures to try and fix their perceived flaw and they can't get it um so you know they might be really asking their parents you know for the money to save up and so we support families to think about how to how to manage that yeah we've had lots of families where financially they've you know found it really difficult because they're buying lots of products for their, their their child helping people to understand their relationship with all of these things on the internet and social media. But then as Rachel was talking about sort of the the inner circle about the people that you are having direct contact with in family, it's really important for them to feel supported, to know what to do, and also for them to know how to support the person suffering um, BDD. Is it understood who's at risk and where it might come from, because sometimes understanding the root cause can be helpful. And then I want to get into the resources and how people can find help. The U.S. is so far behind the U.K. It would be amazing if there were more 
resources like that here. I do see that there are more specialists with BDD, especially at OCD clinics, sort of the umbrella of OCD. There will be therapists that will specialize in BDD or work primarily with BDD. Um, We have a BDD Institute here in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles, which is wonderful. However, access is still really limited and primarily available to those who can afford it. And that's still the case. The groups that I refer people to that are free are all in the UK. (laughs) There's Mm -hmm. one, one group that I can refer people to here, led by a um, BDD researcher who's amazing and recently advocated for a group for therapists with BDD. And we just started that. So that came out of me asking because it didn't exist. (laughs) Wow. Can you tell us the name of that? Uh, Ava Fisher. Yeah, she has a group for just BDD sufferers, anyone that's a BDD sufferer, male or female, typically adults. And that group, you can have your camera on or off. It is run on Skype. And I believe they meet twice a month. So what are some of the resources that are available then in the UK? You know, it's quite worrying to know we're ahead, even though I think we're so, we've got so much, you know, to go really. So the BDD Foundation is our our biggest resource um, in terms of um, the information we have out there. So um, the website's really great in terms of having uh, people with lived experience with BDD sharing their stories. We've had conferences, so we've got speakers, kind of videos, um, information for families, professionals. So there's a huge range of information on there. And we do have support groups that we run via OCD Action, um, but we support them because we're a really small charity. So we kind of jump on and and work with other charities but OCD Action have um, in UK time which will be evening time which would then work for you know um, people in the states and there's a group for parents um, of 16 to 24 year olds so it's quite a sort of a small age range but support for them because we've talked a lot about sort of the impact that can have but there's also groups for sufferers BDD so again, can have camera on off, it's online, and just to kind of be there to support each other in that that journey, regardless of where you are in your, you know, road to kind of recovery, whether you haven't got a diagnosis, but you think you've got BDD up to, you know, being in treatment. So we are very lucky in that respect that we have those groups that run monthly and regularly. And we do, of course, for people in the States, this wouldn't work, but we do, we're moving to our in-person support groups as well. So yeah, we, we're lucky in that respect that there's, I guess we're smaller, a <laughs> smaller area, but we do have those um, resources available. But the BDD Foundation, you know, I know I'm a trustee and I'm a bit biased, but actually it is a fantastic resource. And we've just revamped our website. We had an investment into that. So it's been updated and really user-friendly. And we're just working on a specific site for young people and families um, to make the information more accessible. And we're thinking about various um, things like ethnicity and diversity and ensuring that our information is accessible to all groups. Um, You know, one thing we haven't spoken about actually with BDD is just the the levels of risk. You know, when you you feel kind of so, you know, disgusted with yourself and you feel 
you know, self-esteem is really low and that distress, there's really high risk um, that's associated with BGG. And what I mean by that, sadly, is that um, there's high rates of kind of thinking about suicide and then completed or attempted suicides and another risk, which I know is a really difficult thing to talk about, but it just shows, I think, the level of distress, how bad people can feel. So that's why we think it's really important that people who are facilitating that particularly if they've got BDG themselves, they're getting support outside of that to facilitate those kind of groups because it can be really emotive anyway. And if you have BDG yourself, it can also just add to that. I found that self-compassion work is a key component as well as integrating an evidence-based approach of exposure response prevention work, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, those models are so important and in reducing that we talk about the the levels of bdd from awareness to delusion which would be i i don't see what you see like i only see what i see and i have no part of me that can observe that this might not be right uh where you're fully stuck in believing and seeing what you're feeling versus those lower levels of, I think there's a part of me that knows this isn't right or this I could be wrong, but I still see what I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, yeah, supporting, supporting people getting to those lower levels would be so important. So I'd love to better understand, like, you know, if I'm the family member or the, the patient trying to seek help, can you take us through that journey and talk a little bit more about medications and the role they play and these different types of specialists. We should flag up. I think what you said there about often what family members can do, because I I don't know what you think, Rachel, but I think what you picked up on there is just the the insight um, issue that what we, lots of people with BDD have delays in accessing the right support and Part of that is the resources, but I think a big part of that is because the kind of preoccupation, the distress is around physical appearance. Most often than not, people will be trying to get a physical kind of fix. So I've mentioned cosmetic procedures and so forth. So actually lots of BDD sufferers are kind of lost in that world of trying to get procedures or just even things like on our high streets or, you know, shopping centres kind of going to beauticians and doing kind of, physical solutions to what they deem to be the problem because it's perceived as a problem with physical appearance so I think that in itself causes huge delays because us you know mental health workers are are kind of trying to go in that sea of you know where people might be going because it's very rare I think for people to think oh I think this is perhaps a psychological difficulty even though it's about my physical appearance I'm going to go to mental health services so I think what you've mentioned there is often the people around them that may see that um and see the distress and and perhaps the excessiveness of that and may need to support their family member friend to access that support and I think we've talked about this it's really sort of hooking into that that distress and and try not to get into the content of whether the appearance flaw is there or not but rather just really hooking into the distress and impact that's having that's definitely in the work I do I don't get into conversations about but I don't see what you see you know you just don't go there it's about 
when we won't agree because we all have different perceptions you know we're all looking at each other and have see each other and ourselves completely differently it's about what we can agree on is this is distressing so that would be the hooking for a family member um or you know a friend whoever it is that you think you know might be suffering and and accessing resources to try and sort of support the person to build that insight and then what do you do um so for us in the uk we do have the national health service so it's bringing that person to the the kind of attention of the gatekeeper to that service which for us is the general practitioner and you hope they would ask the right questions so i don't want to be pessimistic but often when people get to mental health services they're misdiagnosed and I think Rachel's mentioned this you know social anxiety depression you know often that's said before BGD because people don't know a lot about it but simple screening questions um or on the BGD foundation website there's a BGD test you know if you can encourage um the person you think who might have BGD to just do that that will screen and you can then take the information to the gatekeepers to that support it's a process. You're probably picking up on that. It's it's a bit of a process to get to that point, but it's an important process um, to support somebody to get to those evidence-based treatments. But I think the good news is there is treatment available and they're improving sort of and getting refined all the time. There's lots of research going on where we're understanding a lot more about you know, I think the recommendation is psychological therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy first before medication and then add the medication in if it's really difficult to kind of boost that. And as Rachel said, not just an exposure-based treatment, but compassion-focused treatment, kind of lots of elements from kind of, you know, social anxiety work that we're sort of picking up on. It's it's still work in progress, but we, we get reasonable, well, quite good results, I shouldn't say reasonable. It's improving all the time you know anything to add around the nuances of how to not waste time and really get the right support even though we're acknowledging there's not a ton out there and my heart is just so heavy and big for those who are really in this struggle um have been through it who are in it who are beginning wherever they are in their journey um amita was talking about level of insight And I would also add motivation in that as well. I I have a pretty typical looking, now knowing what I know, I have a pretty typical journey of someone with BDD who no one knew had BDD. And I had procedures and products and went to skin doctors and and so for years, for years. and was in and out of my lowest spaces, definitely struggling with thoughts of suicide. And it was the level of distress that brought me to a therapist. But when I was at my worst, and I would say, even if there isn't an awareness, because for me at the beginning stages, my looks were the issue. (laughs) It, It was, I had no insight that this was a mental illness. And yet I needed therapy. So I would say, no matter where you are, if you're in distress, emotionally, mentally, get into therapy. It's a great place to start. Even if you don't recognize that you have BDD, even if you don't think it's BDD, if you are struggling with your mental health, it's a great place 
to be in because if you need that higher level of care, you have a professional that can indicate that and work with your family to get you there. That happened to me several times until I, I started to really see some specialists for BDD. I do believe that starting with those evidence-based approaches is essential to create that insight to understand healthy behavioral routines, mirror hygiene. I had never heard of this until I was in my, I don't know, late twenties, early thirties with a BDD specialist who came to my apartment uh, at the time and witnessed my routine and helped me get into a healthier connection with how I related to the mirror. I would have never known that I wasn't even in a healthy relationship with the mirror. <laughs> and so somebody that has that expertise is so important in somebody's journey. I tend to work with people who have already maybe journeyed a little bit through their, their BDD work. They already have insight. I also see a lot of uh, trauma, childhood trauma specifically associated with at least my clients and even in my own world. Uh, typically, there's a lot of themes of emotional neglect from a caregiver or both caregivers to where there was a lot of isolation and maladaptive belief systems that started at really early ages and just escalated and were not reshaped or understood until adulthood when the behaviors and the belief systems were just on another level. And so the work that I tend to do with a lot of my clients is trauma work, um, self-compassion work, integrating mindfulness skills, holistic healing, full body, mind, spirit, understanding of who you are beyond your appearances. And that can't really happen until there are healthy behaviors and routines set in place. So it's not that you can't be focusing on those things. If the motivation or insight isn't there to change your behaviors or stop using products, that education should be happening though of, and that conversation of what is healthy and what is unhealthy for that particular person. I was interviewed by Beating BDD, the podcast, yeah, with yeah. the BDD Foundation, uh, but I am a ballroom dancer. My ballroom dancing journey was a form of exposure therapy that ended up being exposure therapy, but it, um, it has truly impacted my life and really helped me with my BDD journey as well. You're kidding. So you were talking about exposure-based therapy. Can you tell us what that is just so people know in case they didn't hear about it before? Body dysmorphic disorder and OCD and so forth. Exposure-based therapy is, is really important, but as Rachel said, it's not the only ingredient, particularly for BDD treatment. And what that entails is we've talked a lot today about repetitive behaviours and, and actually avoidance, you know, avoidance of going out and so forth. And uh, when it's fear-driven, so when it's driven by anxiety predominantly, what we do in therapy is make a hierarchy a list of the the behaviors or the the kind of avoidance and rank that in terms of what would be kind of less anxiety provoking to kind of the, the scariest thing and then supporting somebody 
who has this kind of fear-based um, behavior to slowly face the triggers of what might trigger that behavioral avoidance and resist doing the behavior. And what people learn is, yes, anxiety goes up and it feels awful, but it always habituates without having to do anything, without seeking reassurance, without checking the mirror. Um, it's really difficult, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. So each time you do it, the anxiety reduces kind of it doesn't go as high and it becomes less anxiety provoking a kind of consequence of that is not just the kind of um physiological kind of change that you notice and that it gets easier you also learn something different so often people we work with are avoiding or doing these behaviors and it undermines the kind of learning that actually if I didn't check the mirror if I didn't wear this makeup if I didn't camouflage if I didn't avoid um then something bad they think something bad will happen they'll be judged negatively people will ridicule them they would notice their appearance then there sometimes is a social kind of component or I might not be able to cope I'll feel really disgusted there might be that aspect so actually by doing the exposure therapy they they also get the opportunity to learn something different that if they wear a little bit less makeup and go out in the, the high street or the, the shopping center what they fear is people will take notice and, and maybe notice their perceived flaw but by going out looking around trying to do some work or not attending to sort of how they feel but attending to the outside world they notice that actually people probably don't take a second look so you get that also that learning about some of the the kind of feared outcomes that they think might happen okay that makes sense thank you and Rachel just because I don't want to make assumptions do you mind defining mirror hygiene yes <laughs> um so mirror hygiene, the way that it was put to me that really supported me was you're not getting ready in the morning to feel a certain way in order to leave the bathroom, that you're getting ready in the morning to just get ready in the morning. You're getting ready in the morning to go through the behaviors of taking care of your, your hygiene, not to have to look a certain way or feel a certain way in order to then leave the bathroom. And so it was a lot of timing with an actual timer, you're going to brush your teeth, you're going to, you know, put on your face cream, you're going, and this is all going to take five minutes. And that just that process might have taken 30 minutes before. So we're going to do this in five minutes, and it should only take you five minutes, then we're going to put on makeup that should take another, you know, five to 10 minutes. And not three hours. (laughs) And So it's, it's a lot of following through the behaviors in the time allotted, and then also trying to keep a neutral mindset and not be criticizing, blaming, shaming, focusing on the flaws. You're really just looking at your body as, oh, it's me with a body, not that's me with lines on my face. That's me with, oh, there's my acne. Oh, there's my you know, my eyebrows are misshapen or I have hair on my chin or I, you're, you're really working on not criticizing your appearance and really just relating to your body more holistically and neutrally. Do you by chance have a message that you would like to give to the Facetune like apps and even the doctors who are doing the surgery when it's clear? I mean, again, I don't know who owns the decisions because we own our bodies, but like, I assume there are times where it's pretty obvious that this is an unnecessary surgery 
not everybody that goes to get procedures and so forth has body dysmorphic disorder. You of, know, course, some, of course, of course. It is common in terms of, we know, you know, of the population, about 2% have BDD and the, the rates in those settings are obviously much higher. Um, yeah, I would just, my kind of advice would be just be careful and please screen for BDD. We've been lobbying, um, you know, I said the collective read, the BDD Foundation, trying to work with surgeons and the cosmetic industry just to kind of be mindful, just a simple screening questionnaire, just to ensure that people who get in the, the cosmetic surgeries haven't got BDD because you'll you'll just get them coming back and they'll be really dissatisfied. That's what the research shows. And there's some scary stories out there of what people have done when they've been really distressed, you know, really distressed with the outcomes of the surgery because it doesn't fix the problem. So yeah, just my my kind of take home message on this all going around, but it would be please be careful and please just be mindful that you are seeing lots of people that have genuine sort of distress. As someone that is sadly told doctors about IBDD and then still been overprescribed or given recommendations that would not be healthy for my mental health. And I'm very aware of that and have been lucky to not make certain decisions because of my own education. My response to that goes, you know, in addition to what Amita was saying, I fully, fully support that completely. But mine is also more towards the individual of there's so much more to who you are than your appearances and so much more to life than focusing on your appearances. Rachel, I'd actually love to end on the sign, a sign of hope as far as like, look at you now you're serving these patients and, you know, have learned so much from your own struggles. I hope uh, that I, something I'm working in the process of working on, I have ran BDD support groups and have just found that everyone is really lacking skills of self-compassion and don't know how to love themselves. And so I'm in the process of creating a support group called Learning to Love Yourself and integrating all of the things that I've learned personally and professionally over the years, including some of those CBT approaches as well as mindfulness skills and self-compassion work with the ability to process and how to integrate and behaviorally change because you can change how you think and ultimately feel about yourself. It is possible. Uh, And there are people that can support you through that. And therapy is a great place to start. Thank you so much, both of you. Truly a pleasure.